This is Women's Australian Rules Football on RSN 927's digital channel Carnival. I'm Peter Holden and welcome to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast on RSN 927's digital radio channel in Melbourne, Carnival. Also via rsn.net.au and the RSN Racing and Sport app. This podcast is also available via Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, the iHeartRadio website and app and at warfradio.com. Like last week's program, we have the one featured guest on the show this week, and it is umpiring legend Di Fyland, who has officiated more than 1,400 matches across men's and women's footy. And naturally, we're going to focus in on her contribution to women's footy as an umpire and a player since the late 1980s. Really looking forward to that interview. They'll be coming up shortly. But first, here's the latest women's footy news. Virtually all the women's footy news over the last week was coming out of the AFL Players Association with its AFLW MVP awards and the inaugural AFLW 22 Under 22 team announcement that was made at 10am on Monday. And the 22 Under 22 looked like this from the defenders, Malloy, Birch, Huntington, Newton and Wilson. The centre line, Patricios, Parker and Conti. The forwards, G, Duffy, Howworth, Rue and Greiser. The Ruck, Lauren Bella, and joined by Madison Press-Parkus and Ebony Marinoff in the engine room. In the interchange of Sarah Allen, Nina Morrison, Wardlaw, Grierson, Zanka and Conway. In the afternoon, the various awards were announced. First of all, St Kilda's Georgia Patrikios won the AFLPA Best First Year Player. Such an honour, obviously. It's, it's a great award to be given and yeah, just a bit of recognition, which is pretty cool. I didn't feel like there was too much pressure. I just tried to have an impact for my team and just do the best I could. And yeah, so that was good enough for me. The Best Captain Award went to Daisy Pearce from the Melbourne Football Club. To be voted by people that you go out to battle with or against is pretty special because they're the ones that truly know what happened out there on the field. I take a lot of pride in my leadership, so to be um, chosen as the Best Captain is pretty special because I've put a lot of time into... Yeah, getting around and trying to make the other people around me better as well as just trying to improve myself all the time. So pretty special. And then I guess this year in particular because of the challenges it took just to get back out there, let alone um, to be in a position to help anyone else, it was a pretty big challenge. So yeah, thanks to everyone at the PA for their support. And then just my teammates and um, all the players in the competition um, yeah, for the hard work that everyone puts in to make it possible and for, um, yeah, your endorsements voting for me in this award. So, yeah, thank you very much. For the 2020 Most Courageous, it went to Kiara Bowers from Fremantle. Good. I mean, I'm never going to take it to the extreme. I'm not that tall, so I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do whatever I can. So go in hard, get the ball. Obviously, it was, it was a bit sucky the first two years not playing. We need to be out there with girls and having a tough first couple of years. But no, look, I played for those first two years because I wasn't able to, so I don't take for granted whatsoever. And look, the girls that aren't out there this year, you know, Alex Williams wasn't allowed to play, so when I'm out there, I play for her. Anya, I've come all over here, so I play for myself and play for them, you know, that's what you got to do. Look, thank, thank the girls. I mean, thanks for the votes. I mean, fully, fully appreciate, don't take for granted whatsoever, so thank you. Uh, thank the AFLPA. You, know, you guys are amazing. Thanks for what you guys do. And thank you to Freya for 
And then to the AFLW MVP of 2020. The top three look like this. In third place, Collingwood's Jamie Lambert on 201 votes. In second place, Carlton's Madison Presparkas on 227 votes. And the runaway winner from the North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos, Jasmine Garner with 413 votes. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, stoked to be honest. I mean, we um, don't play footy for the individual awards, but um, I think this one is pretty cool to win. I mean, to be voted by my, you know, opposition, the, the girls I play against, um, and to be named MVP is, uh, yeah, it's an honour. So I play um, most of my VFL through the midfield. Um, alongside like Emma, Emma Carney, Astridale, Jenna Bruton. Um, I think we yeah, built a strong relationship in there and carried it on to um, AFLW and yeah, just really, really enjoyed playing my footy. And our thank you to the aflplayers.com.au website for that audio. And so to our featured guest for this week on the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast on RSN Carnival. We've had her on the program a couple of times before in all kinds of unusual places, including once in Sarasota, Florida, the US AFL National. She's one of the more famous faces in Victorian women's football. But the trick is most don't actually know her as a player. They know her as an umpire. And she's done more than 1,400 games of football. That's across both men's and women. And we've got a a lot of history to cover. It's finally great to have on the line for an in-depth chat with Coyote herself, umpire Di Filan. Di, how are you? All good here, Pete. How are you going? Great to have you on the line, uh, particularly during these crazy times when people listen back to this podcast. This is done in April 2020 with the COVID-19 situation and uh, no football for anyone at the moment. We're all isolating. Unfortunately, yes, that is the case. Um and I'm sure, I know the umpires are finding it hard, but I'm sure that the footballers are finding it even harder. Let's take a step back through time, as I mentioned. We're going to go right back to when you first got involved in football. We know you as an umpire, but a bit like which came first, the chicken or the egg, did you originally enter football first as an umpire or as a player in the very young uh, VWFL back then? Uh, I started back in 1987 with the Fairfield Falcons as a player. So originally pulling on the boots, and you did hear correctly the Fairfield Falcons, what Darabin were known as when they were first born in, in 1987. So... How did you end up finding Fairfield to begin with? And remember, we're talking about the 80s where there was only a handful of women's clubs around. And, and to be fair, there was a bit of a stigma about women playing football. There definitely was. Um, I found it because one of the girls who lived in the units at college that one of my friends lived in, um, she had found football and she was going to play it she was training during pre-season at Fairfield and I thought, ooh, I've always, you know, I'd always been into my footy and so I went down there and um, she didn't stay but I stuck the season out and for the record, Fairfield Falcons do not acknowledge their teams from 1987 to 89 because of the men's group that they were associated with. So if you ask anybody at Fairfield Falcons about their history, their history only begins officially in 1990, which is when they went to McDonnell Park. 
Intriguing, intriguing, because we know that a, a number of clubs, particularly in women's football, did move around. For example, in 1987, you're playing against uh, the eventual premiers, the Parkville Scorpions, and the Scorpions went through a number of changes, originally as Broadmeadows, then as Aberfeldy, as Parkville, and also at time as East Brunswick and Northcote Park. That is correct, because that's the team that I've played most of my games with. So 1987 is the year. Parkville Scorpions win the Premiership. That was their fifth Premiership since the competition began in 1981. They'd be the most successful VWFL club, winning 11 Premierships in total. What can you tell us about the best player in your inaugural year, Bernie Marantelli out of Parkville? Uh, Without a shadow of doubt, Barrett, an incredible player to play against. She could run rings around just about anybody. Bernie was very, very fit. And I think that was, you know, she had skills too, but the hallmark of her game was her fitness. And you've got to remember back at that time, she was, um, I believe, also a semi-pro runner running in store gifts and had won around that time one or 100 metres at stall. So, you know, she had a lot of dash, but she had good skills. And she was the sort of person who could bring others into the game. So, you know, um, she was a, a great opponent. And as a teammate, who she became one of my teammates in uh, 1990 when I went to Scorpions, um, an incredible person. And I'm really excited. I was really excited for this year because after many years out of women's football, she's, Bernie has actually come back to coaching at Strathmore for their senior women's team. So I was really looking forward to see what she could bring to the park for women's football in this modern era. That is exciting to hear that some of the women who, and and let's be fair, um, when AFLW came along, a number did feel like they were left behind or not acknowledged, as in the history was kind of overlooked a bit and they were only focusing on current players and those involved in current administration. That's uh, probably a pretty fair comment. Um, I know I certainly felt like a lot of a lot of those that I played with and against, and there were some very, very notable names. Um, they seemed to get lost in things. However, in the last couple of years, a few of them are starting to filter back in as even AFLW clubs are realising that some of these former players still have. Um, a great deal to give to the game and they're being given opportunities now. Um, I know Carlton picked up a couple, St Kilda with Peter Searle, um, Geelong with uh, Natalie Wood. You know, there's a number of absolutely outstanding players as they were back in my earlier days um, who are now getting the opportunity to give back at the highest possible level which is really you know, something that I'm really pleased to see that uh, clubs are giving these girls opportunities. Let's rewind back to that first season again, 1987. You're playing with the Fairfield Falcons. You're pulling on the boot. Describe Di Fyland, the footballer, in her first year. Oh, golly. Uh, that's really uh, challenging the memory banks. Um, look, I wasn't 
any great shakes as a player. Um, I had skills both sides of my body, which um, most players didn't have, which was one of the reasons why I played um, left back pocket because I was one of the few who could kick with my left foot under pressure. Um, I didn't do anything particularly marvellous, but I had an awful lot of fun. Um, it certainly didn't dampen my enthusiasm for the game. I suffered a few injuries, which cost me a few weeks on the sidelines here and there, but um, I'm probably one of the more forgettable players from that particular time um, as a player. You know, as you alluded to at the start, I've gone on to make my mark in another area of the game. So um, that was just my start. Um, it, if anything, my years as a player um, proved to me that uh, I could probably put my talents to better use elsewhere. Let's talk about the early years of playing women's football before you took up umpiring in 1991. This is a long way away from the semi-professional era or even the fitness craze and anyone doing uh, all the CrossFit training and all that that we have today. What is a typical preparation like for match day? Is there any training at all? Everyone's just rolling up on match day. What is the fixture like? How many games in the year have you got? And obviously the equipment, the hand-me-downs that uh, you had to deal with in those early years. Um, well, training was pretty much what it, you know, in terms of schedule, what a lot of local clubs are still like these days. You had two nights a week. Um our training nights were Wednesdays and Fridays because matches were always played on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, you turn up to training. Uh, the early days at Fairfield, we'd just do a couple of laps. By the time I got to um, Scorpions, we were doing war a warm-up session was um, anything from about four to ten laps or for some of us, we'd go on a five or six K street run one night a week. Um, that'd be our warm-up. We'd get into skill drills, uh, a lot of short kicking to start with, some handballing, circle work, um, you know, pretty much the standard stuff that you see at any uh, local football club if you go down to their training sessions these days. But, um, I mean, as you climb the tree, obviously that changes but the early days that was pretty much it on a Sunday we'd all rock up to the ground about an hour before um, those who needed it would get taped up but not all clubs had qualified trainers um, so a lot of that was you do your own uh, you'd go out on on the ground uh, pick somebody up and go out on the ground with a footy and kick it around for 10 minutes and then back into the rooms and um, if you were lucky enough to have a coach to have words with you, the coach would come in, have their words and then you'd be out on the park and playing. Um, certainly not quite the same match day lead-ins as happens at a lot of clubs now. I think um, women's football, even at local level, is starting to become more professional um, you know, and I put a lot of that down to the fact that 
we've got AFLW and VFLW and that there are clear pathways for players. So, you know, if we're going to get the best out of our players and we're going to give them the opportunity to take those pathways, then clubs are realising that they need to up the ante at their end and make it so that it is a more professional type of environment so that those girls get those opportunities that will allow them to move on. I'm going to keep throwing at you every now and again a handful of names of those that you would have played against over that period, including we talk about how players would move a lot from one side of the town to another side of the town to get a game. For example, um, Doreen Di Pascali, um, uh, co-best and fairest winner uh, with Bernie Marantelli uh, in 88, uh, originally at Ballarat Eagles, then went across to St Kilda City where she tied with Debbie Lee for the best and fairest in 94. Yes, um, we first played, well, I first played against Dawes in 1990 when Ballarat came into the competition. Um yeah, her and Bernie are, are very, very, very similar types of players in a lot of respect. Both good engines, good skills, brought other players into the game. Um, Dawes was a tough nugget. Um, and again, uh, somebody who I think if I hadn't been playing against her, I would have thoroughly enjoyed watching her play. Um, but when you're on the receiving end of some of the dishings out, um, she's not such a great person. But, yeah, she was one hell of a footballer. And, um, you know, it's great to have people like that around. And, you know, I think one of the things that happened over the years as the game was evolving, players did move around and they did go to other clubs and gave those other clubs the benefit of their experience and enabled those other clubs to grow themselves. So, you know, I guess that's one of the pluses out of all the moving around that um, happened around that time. One more name I'll mention before we turn to your umpiring year of 1991. In 89, the last of uh, Parkville Scorpions three in a row, the best and fairest that year was out of Parkville. Lisa Hardiman. Most know her as the name for the Hardiman Hampson Cup. Uh, some know, her, of course, through her police work, being high up in uh, Victoria Police. But what was Lisa Hardiman, the footballer, like? I have enormous respect for her um, as a person and as a player. She also uh, coached Scorpions for a brief time. No, sorry, she didn't coach. She was league president in our last year. Um, But again, somebody who wasn't afraid to work hard at a game, um, a skillful player. And again, I'm glad that I played on the same team as her because when she hit, she hit hard. Um, She was a great support to the girls around her. Um, yeah, just one of those people that you really wanted to have on your side. So let's turn to 1991. Before we talk about uh, the VWFL and uh, a story about its grand final, this is the year 
you turn to umpiring, and I believe first with the EDFL. What saw you make the switch to taking the whistle? Okay. Back in 1991, I was working as a shift worker, which meant that I either worked 4 till midnight or midnight to 8 a.m. That meant that on the weeks that I was doing the 4 to midnight, I couldn't train. So I blame Julie Allen for this one because I rang her one day to say, hey, Jules, I'm on shift tonight. I can't make training. And she said to me, Coyote, the boys need a boundary umpire on Saturday. You're it. So I said, okay, fair enough, you know. I'm working the afternoon shift, so I'm not going to have a problem doing a 12 o'clock game. So opening game of the season, I go down to the club. They put a whistle in my hand. And at the end of the game, I turned around to Bobby Hunter, who was the coach of the seconds at East Brunswick men's at the time, and said, okay, Bobby, I've survived that. That was actually a bit of fun, contrary to what I thought it would be. Um, do you need me next week? And Bobby, little Bobby turned around to me and he says, if you want to do it, you're it for the season. So therein that was born. And one of the guys who was playing um, in the seconds at that time, uh, Wayne Dooley, was also coaching the under-10s. And he turned around and said, can you come and do my kids' games on Sunday? So... There started uh, something that is still continuing today. Um, you know, I fell into it by accident, but discovered that, you know, I wasn't, because I wasn't any great shakes as a footballer, I was never going to win games off my own boot or anything silly like that. Um, I discovered that I loved umpiring and I took to it like a duck to water, and the rest, as they say, is uh, history. Turning point, 1991 VWFL Grand Final. It is the East Brunswick Scorpions versus the Ballarat Eagles. We'll talk in a moment about two famous players that we know in that game. You had an interesting uh, situation to play or to umpire. That one, I did. That one wasn't as much of an issue. It became an issue in 1994 was the big one that I had the issue with. Uh, 91 and 91, 93. um, 93, I was offered the chance but turned it down as in umpiring because I felt that I had a chance to play in the grand final. So I was fortunate enough to play in our two winning premierships in 91 and 93. Come 94, I knew that um, we had a bunch of people available and after speaking to the coach um, the week before or a couple of weeks before when the league approached me about umpiring, running the boundary for the grand final, I went to the coach and said, well, look, this is the situation. And I was told, uh, do what you do best. Because at this stage, out of 22 players, you're number 23. So 94 was my first um, 
on the boundary, my first grand final, um, which happened to be a Scorps Ballarat grand final again at Coburg. It was a bit of a rivalry between those two sides. Uh, I talk about 91. It sticks particularly in my head, and I should correct myself. Yes, that was 94 that you uh, did the field umpiring for, uh, did the umpiring for it. Um, in 91, the reason why that sticks in my head was that year, Debbie Lee wins best on ground in a grand final for the East Brunswick Scorpions. This is before she goes on to form Sunshine YCW women's side, who would end up becoming the St. Auburn Spurs and now the VU Western Spurs. And on the other side, playing for the Ballarat Eagles, won Nicole Graves. Yes. Yes. Um, Debbie had an absolute blinder that day. Um but she had a very, very solid season. She was a first-year player. She came down, her and Motsi came down one Wednesday night to training, these young kids, all of about 14, 15, um, came down to see what all the fuss was about and turned out to be two of our greatest midfielders. Um, yeah, Debbie was someone... A player of the likes that comes along once in a generation. Um, I think those of us who played with her had a distinct advantage because Debbie had, shall we say, um, a quirky kicking style. And when she put boot on ball, if you were watching her technique, you would justifiably run one way when the ball was actually going the other. So those of us who trained with her had a distinct advantage over the opposition. Um, and, you know, it, it amazed me that so many people didn't pick up that she only had a left boot, didn't have a right-hand side at all, and yet they always played her from the right, which made a good player look even better because she was just able to do things that others couldn't do. I'm surprised you could trust her. Can you ever trust a lefty? Once we'd worked out her kicking technique, absolutely. Um, she was pinpoint if you knew what to look for, which obviously, as I say, those of us who trained with her did. Um, she was not the sort of player who tended to waste possession. She was very hard at the ball. She didn't mind getting down and dirty and risking head and chin, as they say in one of those classic club songs. Um, and again, she's a player that, you know, I was fortunate to play with her for two years before she moved on in 93 to start Sunshine YCW. Um, dreaded playing against her in 93 and 94. And then I was fortunate enough, 95, which was my last year as a player, um, I actually went, when Scorps folded, went to Sunshine YCW and played my last year with her again. Um, and, you know, I've umpired her a number of times in grand finals over the years, and she didn't change the way she did things. She was the same honest, hardworking, reliable player from day one till the day she put the boots away. Can you talk about the player rivalry at that stage between Debbie Lee and a person we rarely ever speak about as a player? We always focus on her as a coach, 
Peter Searle because Peter Searle's running around at that stage. And while Debbie starts Sunshine YCW, just literally down the road, Peter helps starts the Albion Cats women's side. Um, Peter is one of another one of those great players. She, I remember ninety, I think it was ninety four, no ninety three. We were at East Brunswick. Ninety three. We didn't find out till after the grand final, but she played a big chunk of the season apparently with busted ribs. She'd go in and get strapped up before the game. Um, but as I said, we didn't find that out till the end. Um, you would never have known to watch her play. She was one of the most fierce at the contest, um, getting into packs, putting her body on the line consistently. Great skills, but she also had... Um, she she had a knack for the game. She had an innate sense of what to do and when to do it. And she's carried that through into her coaching. So I wasn't at all surprised when Peter um, decided to go down the coaching path. And I was super excited when Port Melbourne picked her up because I thought finally somebody is recognising that Women do not only do women have a place in this game, but this woman is finally being recognised for the talent that she has in getting the good out of players. We'll have more of our chat with Di Fineland coming up right after this. Been playing for a while, sweet kicks, because footy makes you smile. Sweet kicks football If you're getting ready for the trials Gotta go the extra mile Sweet kicks football Not always hearing that sweet sound when you kick the ball? Need to develop your footwork or explosive speed? Want to take the next step in your footy career? Then you need Sweet Kicks. More info on our Facebook page or go to our website, sweetkicksfootballacademy.com.au. Gotta go the extra mile, Sweet Kicks Football. You're listening to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks for your company. We're chatting to women's footy and umpiring legend Di Fyland, who's officiated in more than 1,400 matches and contributed to women's footy as a player and umpire for more than 30 years. So we have 90s football. Sunshine YCW starts up. Albion starts up. You've got St Kilda City running around as well, as we said. Uh, Fairfield have moved to Darabin at that stage, and Darabin are on the way to wing their first flag in uh, 1996. You've got the Parkside Magpies as well. What are we talking about the standard uh, as you're umpiring women's football there in, in the mid-90s? What is the standard of play like? It's obviously hard to compare it against the semi-professionalism that we've got to this day. But you've, by that stage, seen about 10 years of women's football. What are you seeing as that standard? In terms of skills, you're right. It's not the same 
as we have today. But for those people who get round local footy comps, they're senior women's comps these days, you'll see a lot of the clubs that are starting up have probably got a similar skill base to a number of those who were around in that um, late 80s, early 90s. I think the one thing that's characteristic of all is the passion of the game. The people who played footy back in those days, um, they played the game because they had a passion for football. You know, it was socially, well, I won't say unacceptable, but it was questioned, um, you know, as to why young ladies or even young women would play this game and do the things that they did. And, you know, a lot of questions were raised about the players who did play. But the one thing that every one of them had in common was an incredible passion for the game. And I think that's something that we're starting to see again now um, with the number of teams that are coming into local football. Um, but, yeah, the, the standard wasn't as great as some of the better teams now, but the passion has always, always been there. For you, as you mentioned, around the mid-90s is when you hang up the boots as a player and then transition more into umpiring. Can you talk about the number of games per week, and this is across both men's and women's, that you're doing as an umpire while you're playing and how much then that changes again the moment you hang up your playing boots? Okay. My early days, I was doing probably three games a week on the boundary while I was still playing, sometimes four if it was a home game and and the juniors were playing at home um, and then I'd play. When I hung up the boots, I was doing, still doing three to four games a week. Um, I just wasn't having to go through, you know, suffering the agonies on Monday morning of having been hit half a dozen times during the game on a Sunday and struggling to get out of bed and walk the next day. Um, even to now, I'm doing four when we have a regular season, I'm doing four to five games a week still. And I'm guessing, considering how much uh, the schedules have changed for local football these days, particularly juniors, we're talking like a Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Yep, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Um, Friday night, sometimes two games, depending on what level it is. Um, if it's if there's senior women's on on the Friday night, I usually only do the one game. Um, but if it's juniors, I'll often do two and work with junior umpires. Saturday, um, I'll do either 19s, reserves or senior women's or sometimes I'll do um, a 19s and a senior women's. And then Sundays, I'll often start the day with a junior game and then do a senior women's game in the afternoon. Let's talk about the umpiring uh, panel makeup back there in the 90s. 
What are we talking about? The number of umpires that have put their hand up outside of uh, the EDFL, the old Footscray District umpires back in the day, Southern umpires, etc. How many have committed to this pool that were the Victorian Football League Umpires Association? And uh, um, how many games a week did you have to do of women's football at that stage? Because I'm imagining it was more of a struggle to get someone willing to do a women's game than it was to do a men's game, particularly senior men's games, if I recall, back in the 90s, were paying roughly about, for a field umpire, about 90 bucks a game. What we found, or what I found, and it was one of the reasons I became an umpire, is that the guys who were umpiring women's football in the mid-90s, a lot of them, all they were interested in was getting their, back then it was 40 bucks cash in hand. So all they were really interested in was getting their 40 bucks, laughing at the girls and telling them they can't play football, um, and then taking off at the end of the game as soon as they'd got their money. I didn't feel that... um, a lot of these guys had any real passion for women's football. And I thought that a lot of the time they treated the women like second-class citizens. So um, that, I mean, you're always going to get people who are in it for the money. But as the years have gone on, we're starting to get more and more umpires who are seeing what women's football's got to offer and are actually wanting to become a part of it, which, you know, I'm wrapped that that's starting to happen. Can you talk about the first grand final that you managed to do as a field umpire? I will never forget it. It was uh, my 21st year as a field umpire when I finally got my first ever field grand final. And I actually got one, I got the last Northwest grand final in the women's league and an EDFL thirds men's grand final in the the space of seven days. Um, That first one in the VWFL, um, I didn't know at the time that it would be my first and only in the VWFL as a field umpire. Um, it was it was surreal because I was umpiring with two guys who were good mates of mine, um, which made it that little bit more special. And one of them I'd actually brought into field umpiring after having trialled at the VFL with him in the goals. Um, I had a lot of friends playing on both sides, um, which, again makes it interesting because you have to put away that friend tag and focus on what is in front of you and nothing else. And sometimes that can be a little hard. That grand final that you did, Northwest Conference, the last Northwest Conference grand final would have been won by Bendigo, which of course... Playing for Bendigo would have been one Emma Grant, who we just had on the show. And, of course, Emma would also go on to win the very last Helen Lambert medal before it would be renamed Lambert Pierce in the final year of the VWFL in 2016 when she'd win it for Bendigo and play in that losing grand final against uh, Deer Park. Uh, (laughs) It's a small world, isn't it, Di? 
Oh, it certainly is. And, you know, you've just touched on another player for whom I have absolutely enormous respect. Um, I was disappointed, I guess, to see Emma put the boots away, but I think, you know, given her history, um, she's made the right decision. It's just that football is going to be deprived of um, that extra couple of years that I thought she probably had in her. But that being said, the fact that she's taking on the Metro um, under-18s and coaching, um, what a great way to give back to the game. And it's going to be awesome to have her still having input um, and bringing on the next generation of players because, again, she's a lady who has a great great knowledge of the game and, you know, she's a great communicator. She always, I always enjoyed umpiring her because out on the field, you could always hear her talking to and encouraging her teammates and um, bringing a really a lot of positives to the game. I'm going to throw a name at you, a surname, Benici. And I'll throw a team name at you, St Kilda. Now, many people, when they first think Benici, St Kilda, they start put two and two together and they go, oh, St Kilda Sharks, Brittany Benici. But perhaps the You're most famous Sharon. Benici, yes, out of St yeah. Kilda City, as they were known as Sharon Benici. Can you tell us about her three league best and fairest in a row, including uh, St Kilda's only two premierships at the top level in the VWFL and Premier Division in 98 and 99. Yes, I had the pleasure of umpiring her a number of times too. And again, you know, a lot of these names you're picking out are, um, they're players who played in the midfield. They're players who brought their teammates into the game. And, you know, they've left a lasting mark on the clubs that they've played with. Um, some really fabulous young ladies, as they were then. And, yeah, I have fond memories of umpiring Sharon at the Peanut Farm. Since we keep talking about midfielders, how about we uh, change it up for you? Let's talk about one Rowena Young. The league goal kicking is obviously named after her, after the medal transferred over from the VWFL to the uh, VFLW. Um, Rowena, of course, out of the Parkside Magpies and now back uh, coaching inside the women's football system again. Yep, Gun Ford. I played with her at um, Sunshine YCW. Um, great pair of hands. Great pair of hands. She's um, ranks right up there with the best. Used her body very well um, to displace opponents. Um, back when she was early earlier on in her career, she was very mobile, which was another asset that she had. Um, could read the play coming down the field very well, which, you know, if you're going to be a, a key forward, you need to be able to do that. Could play centre-half forward, full forward, um, known to play the occasional game in the ruck. 
Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if she spent a bit of time on the half-back line occasionally as well, just when you know a good pair of hands was needed to shore things up. Since we're talking about the uh, late 90s, early 2000s era, it's around this time that the national carnivals um, come together. Victoria would dominate uh, every national carnival that was played and uh, wouldn't be just hosted in Melbourne, be hosted across uh, many a state. How many national carnivals, Di, did you have the privilege of participating in? Um, I got to officiate in two national carnivals. Um, I missed my first carnival in 96 with a, um, suffered a calf injury at training the Thursday night before my, what was supposed to have been my inaugural game. Um, so I went to that game at Arden Street on crutches and had to miss that complete carnival, but I got to umpire in two different carnivals, which was pretty special. Um, I think one of them was the time I was actually filling in because at the time I was the uh, director of umpiring in the BWFL and I was hoping to have enough umpires that I wouldn't have to pull the boots on at nationals, but I ended up having to do a couple of games down at Parkside during the carnival, which was, yeah, I, I did enjoy it, you know, getting to see the best of the best is something that um, I always took great pleasure in. Um, and it's, it is a very different level of football to umpiring local football. So having that opportunity was something that I won't forget in a hurry. As you mentioned, you were director of umpires uh, for that national carnival we are talking about the amateur days where everyone is paying their own way that includes players for, for the umpiring point of view was it just the victorian umpires uh, officiating when it was held in melbourne or did you see other umpires from interstate also flying in to participate in the carnival uh, we had a number like i think three or four umpires in 2004 who came in um, with their roles, with their clubs, but they were like defence force personnel, if I remember rightly. And because they were there with um, work, so to speak, one of the expectations on them was that they would actually get out and officiate games, which it took, from my perspective, um, in terms of trying to organise umpires for games, having those guys there definitely took pressure off me. Um, and it was great to have other non-Victorians um, participating in that capacity during that carnival. During that time, there's been a number of changes to the rules leading up to when the National Carnival uh, took place that it affected football. We go back to when we used to just have in the 80s. It was obviously at the centre square and you just had the centre circle. Rucks could oppose from any angle. Then we had the line across the middle. And then, of course, we had the second circle that would later be introduced. Um, if I recall, the second circle came in around 04 and 05. These were essentially rules established out of the men's game. How did some of these rule changes that were coming in affect what was happening at the women's level from your perspective as an umpire? 
I think a lot of the rule changes that came in probably didn't affect the women as greatly as the men. And the reason I say that is because women didn't start playing football at eight years of age and grow up with a certain set of rules and then suddenly, you know, 10, 15 years into their playing career have things changed. A lot of girls coming in were, you know, relatively new to the game, so they didn't have um, these ideas about what the rules were and, you know, how they didn't worry about how these changes might affect them because they didn't know any different at the time. So around uh, the early 2000s, we have Melbourne Universities uh, coming to the competition. They ended up winning uh, three flags out of that one. And if I'm correct, uh, uh, if I'm correct, daughter, I think it was, of uh, North Melbourne footballer, uh, Michelle Dench was running around those days. Oh, yes. Yes. And um, around that time, and again, it was, probably around 2004-ish, I can't remember the exact year, but Melbourne Uni and St Albans played a game for points on the MCG. And I will never forget as the end zone umpire down the punt road end of the ground, um, the ball's coming down towards me and I see two very well-known names charging at the ball with eyes only for the ball, Debbie Lee and Michelle Dench. And to this day, I can still hear the thud when their bodies met. Um, Debbie came off worse. She had to be taken off on the the cart. Um, It was a classic hit. and a classic bit of play by uh, two great footballers. I suppose if you're going to get knocked out anywhere or end up worse for wear, at least you're able to say, well, I did it on the MCG. Exactly. I've got another, uh, I guess, hook to Debbie Lee in just one moment, but another name I do want to mention in there was playing at Debbie Lee's side back then when it was the St Norbans Spurs. Another name to mention, um, she was recently uh, coach of Carlton, the VFLW, still an assistant coach with Carlton on their AFLW uh, roster. We speak of Shannon McFerrin, five Helen Lambert medals, and as well... We really actually speak of how she dominated the national carnivals. Yes. Um, Shannon was one of those players who, to look at her, you wouldn't believe that she could do the things with her body that she did. You know, she's she was skinny. Um, she was just a lean machine, she could run all day. If she hadn't taken to football the way she did, she could very well have gone to the top of umpiring. She was one hell of a boundary umpire in her younger days. Um, And I was never able to convince her that umpiring was a better option for her and her body. Um, She preferred to play football. Um, Another one of those players who had an innate sense of the game and 
could just bring players into the game at will. Um, very hard to chase down. If she got she got a jump on you, you weren't catching her. Uh, good skills again. In this day and age, if she were coming into the game now, she would not be out of place at all. She wins those uh, best and fairest through 2002, 2003, 2005, 6 and 7. Around this time, uh, St Albans break up that uh, th- a chance of a three in a row for a four in a row, pardon me, for Melbourne University by winning the 2004 Premiership. Best on ground in that 2004 grand final is Debbie Lee. It's interesting to note the best on ground in the grand final the next year in 2005, almost like a passing of the baton, and it was best on ground in a losing grand final as well, Daisy Pearce. Yep. Uh, remember both of those. Daisy came out that day and right from the very first bounce, from the very first touch she got on the football, she was dominant. Um, unfortunately, she didn't have, you know, all the players around her that she would have liked doing stuff, but she absolutely dominated the game. I was fortunate enough um, that was a run of years where I was in the goals for the Premier Grand Finals. And, you know, I can say that quite happily that I was there at ground level literally watching these players come into their own and delivering on the biggest stage of all. Talking about delivering on the big stage, you'll mention one name who won the uh, uh, Rowena Young medal five times, Moana Hope. Now, at Darabin, she won it three times from 2006 to 2008, coinciding with uh, three of their first uh, five premierships in that run from 06 to 2010. And then, of course, latter at the St Kilda Sharks. When you're seeing a forward like that in action, are you enjoying it more umpiring as a field umpire when you're in that end zone or as a goal umpire behind the sticks? Um, I think back in those days, I was used, well, pointy end of the season anyway, I was used far more in the goal. So I don't really know how I would have felt about watching um, a player such as that in the field. But I do know... um, that any time a player is on song and delivering really special stuff, um, I get a real big kick out of it as a field umpire, uh, particularly if you're the one who's got that particular zone at the time and is the one making the call because there is nothing better than an electric player on fire. From 2008 onwards, Daisy Pearce would dominate with the Helen Lambert medals. And, of course, as we now know in the VFLW, it's uh, now half-named in her honour, the Helen Lambert Daisy Pearce medal. It's only broken up by a handful of players through that time. One out of Melbourne University, Cecilia McIntosh, who hung up the boots at AFLW level, but still running around for Essendon in the VFLW. And two others who, of course, are still running around after hanging up the boots at AFLW level. Uh, Lou Watton, 
won it twice with what was then known as East Burwood before becoming the Eastern Devils, 2010 and 2012. And Meg Hutchins won her first one, can you believe it, 16 years ago now, 2004, when the Devils were known as Deacon Uni. Yeah, I was very fortunate to umpire a lot of um, Deacon games back in that period. So I was lucky enough to see Hutchie and Lou right from their very early days and right from the get-go. You could see that there was something special about both of them. Um, And Celia McIntosh, for mine, one of the greatest defenders I've ever had the pleasure of umpiring. You know, um, an incredibly respectful player um, towards officials and opponents. But, oh, what a tough little nugget she was. You know, I was a little disappointed that she pulled the pin on AFLW, but uh, was super excited that uh, Essendon gave her an opportunity at VFL level because, you know, she might be in her 40s now, but she's still got a hell of a lot to deliver um, to to give people. And, you know, Lou and Hutchie, they've both, they've both still got a lot of football left in them, I think. We'll have more of our chat with Di Island coming up shortly. We are the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation striving to empower our most marginalised communities through literacy and education. Literacy is having a voice. Literacy is opportunity. Literacy is dreaming big. Literacy is freedom. Today, you can help end inequality and give every child access to our life-changing and proven literacy programs. Your support is vital. Donate now at alnf.org. You're listening to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast on RSN 927's digital radio channel in Melbourne, Carnival. We're speaking with Di Fyland, who's officiated in more than 1,400 matches of men's and women's footy and has had an involvement in women's footy going back originally as a player since the late 1980s. Before we talk about present day, and of course you also umpiring in the Masters League, which we'll talk about that in a moment's time, Looking back on the VWFL and your time through umpiring it, who would you say some of the best umpires you had the privilege umpiring alongside of? And I cover all bases from field to boundary to goal. One of my favourites has always been Gary Minari. he's He's a team umpire but he also had the respect of the players. And it's great to rock up to games and the players see who the umpires are and they say, oh, great, we've got you two because you know you just know that the game's going to flow and it's going to be played in the right spirit. Um, for mine, he's probably the greatest BWFL umpire that there's been. You've had the opportunity to umpire many players, and before we talk about possibly the best that you've laid your eyes on, it was probably... I'll, I'll talk about it in two ways. One, the cheekiest player. It might give you a bit of cheek, but it was all in, in good humour. 
And also, who was probably the player that, if you wanted to say so, and hopefully they're retired by now, is the player who's probably giving you the most grief while you've been out there umpiring? Okay. The most grief one's probably the easiest one to deal with. She was a great full forward at, um, at Darabin. She's still giving me grief. Um, love her to death, Sal Rees. She's still, you know, she's coaching at, at Pascoe Vale. She's heavily involved in women's football still. Um, nothing has changed from the early 90s when I played against her through the mid-90s when I umpired her to now. Um, cheekiest player? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think if a player gets to a level of cheeky with me, it's because they know me really, really well um, and have known me for a lot of years. I know there's one kid, I only umpired her for one year, uh, played at Pasco Vale. I actually umpire with her these days, but she spent a year playing and uh, Laura will forgive me for mentioning her, but I've just got to give you one little story about this kid. When she first started umpiring under 18, she was put with me. And I told her a few home truths that day, and she didn't like me very much, and she admitted it. By the end of the season, we'd gotten to know each other pretty well and had developed a very positive relationship. She came out... A couple of years ago on the field at Pasco Vale, they were playing Craigieburn, I think. And I've gone in for a ball up. And as I'm about to release the ball, I hear Laura say to her opponent, you realise that's my grandma, don't you? Um, needless to say, I kind of stopped. <laughs> we, uh, we had a good giggle. Um yeah, definitely one of the cheekiest players I've ever played against. Um, I guess another one, and she's played at a lot of different clubs over the years, um, is Renee Melton. Um, never misses an opportunity to have a few words on the field. Um, yeah, some, some interesting people over the years. A bit of a tricky question, um, and we're looking to players that you've umpired that have gone on to, to play in the AFLW. Uh, a number of them will retire, many of them will go into coaching, some will even go into media. Not too many actually think about umpiring. We've seen only a, a handful, and we think of Jordan Bannister, for example, on the men's side that made it to the AFL and then went into AFL umpiring. Probably happens more in cricket that you see uh, former players go to umpiring. Out of some of the players that you've had the privilege of umpiring, who do you think that's made the AFLW that has the characteristics to possibly make a good umpire should they choose to do that and then maybe recycle themselves in 10 years' time find themselves an AFLW umpire? Um, the way the AFL is set up now, it would be have to be someone who is fairly young and is prepared to work really hard for four or five years. Um, so you'd be perhaps looking at someone who's uh, in their early 20s at most because they tend to take them into the VFL around that age. 
um, and who's perhaps been injured out of the game as a player. Um, look, I would love to see someone like um, a Lou Watton or a Meg Hutchins take up umpiring. Um, I think, you know, any any number of them are physically capable. It's the mental side of things is different. And I don't know enough of the modern-day AFLW players. You know, I've I've known a lot of them. Um, Like, for example, I think I can't imagine someone like a Rocky Cranston umpiring. You know, she might come out and surprise me in a couple of years' time. But, um, you know, I think... I think for a lot of them, playing the game and playing it hard at a high level is probably about where a lot of them are going to want to finish their days rather than come back and, you know, start from the bottom and try and work their way through again. Fair call. And probably the toughest question... And it's hard to compare eras. So we, we kind of leave that skill set aside compared to those that were semi-professional era compared to those that played, obviously, in the foundation years of the VWFL. But in your humble opinion, who was the best player that you managed to umpire over the years? Oh, golly. Look, you've touched on a number of the great players that um, I've had the pleasure of seeing. Um, It's, yeah, it's a really, really tough one because each of them brings something a little bit different to the game. Um, What, whilst I, I won't say who was the, absolute best um, I'll just leave you with the thought of one player who umpired in one game last year her first ever game on Australian soil didn't know it at the time but it was a Friday night at Aberfeldy and I had the pleasure of umpiring Danny Marshall didn't know that she not played a lot of football before, that she was out here on a wing and a prayer and an absolute leap of faith. Um, she played a dominant game in a team that dominated on the night. I wasn't at all surprised to see her get picked up within a few weeks by the Bulldogs VFL, and I was not at all surprised to see her picked up by their AFL side. Um, I think she's something special and she got something to give to the game. Another player who I rate very, very highly after umpiring her in an underage game a couple of years ago, and that's Maddie Prasparkas. You know, she uh, she's the complete package as far as I'm concerned. She's... She's hard, she's skillful, she's got a tank that just doesn't seem to run out of petrol. 
Some um, some even say her sister's even better. I have heard tell of that, and I I actually think I may have umpired Georgie once. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's a really exciting time to be around football with some of these fantastic kids coming through the ranks, you know, and you know, young Georgie's just one of them. Um, Another kid coming out of Pasco Vale and the Calder Cannons set up is um, young lass by the name of um, Milzy Yusia. Um, she's an excitement machine if she can uh, curb her enthusiasm a little bit and not keep hitting the ground so bloody hard after going up in the air. Um, she's, you know, she just has no regard for her own body, just sees football and goes for football. She's an incredible kid. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot of good young kids coming through. In the more than 1,400 games that you've umpired, not all of them have actually been in Australia, as you kind of semi-alluded to when you're talking about Danielle Marshall being an American. In 2016, just after the VWFL came to an end. You actually went across to the United States and you took part in the US AFL National Championships in Sarasota, Florida. How did the idea of making that trip come about? Um, Through talking to um, one of our coaches at training, he was involved with a group that was going over and... Um, a couple of us decided, hey, this could be a good learning curve for us. So we spoke to Doug and he said, yep, I'll put you in touch with people. He was going over as well. So um, a group of us made our way over and we went over in the knowledge that we were going over to help coach these people, um, the, the US umpires, and to help them build their game as umpires. Um, I was fortunate enough that um, the heat in Sarasota has its own attrition rate and I was lucky enough to actually be able to take the field, which was um, pretty special to umpire our game in a foreign country and umpire all these people who weren't used to having a female umpire and who weren't used to some of the some of the rules that um, well with my experience um, I was probably calling some things that they hadn't been used to having called before How did they react to that? Um, you know, they kind of know the basics of the rules, but there's a few little tricky ones in there um, from the trips and the kicking in dangers, etc. from shepherding in the ruck contest, which wouldn't get called all that often over there. Um, <laughs> they've already perplexed enough about the game as it is. They don't actually get to play 18 aside that often. They have to play usually a smaller seven aside or nine aside. Um, how was it communicating with them about rules? They go, oh, I didn't know. It was actually, um, it was a great experience and it was 
it was great to hear them they take on board um, what we were trying to achieve. Um, and the number of players, like you'd make a call and the first thing they would do was say, can you please explain that? So they actually used it as an educative process, which was, um, you know, part of the reason that we were over there was to help to educate and players and umpires alike. They were like little sponges. They just wanted to know. And, you know, uh, it was great because the best way to learn is to ask and the best way for me to teach is to have people asking. Now you find yourself umpiring not in the EDFL, but the Victorian Masters rules. They've got uh, a women's league now. How does it feel umpiring uh, at a slightly slower pace uh, competition, but a lot of familiar faces that you're seeing once again? I think you've touched on the reason why I do it. It's the fact that all these ladies that I played football with and against are dusting off the boots and coming back to the game and they're bringing a whole new bunch of ladies who've always wanted to play but never had the opportunity before and there's an infectious enthusiasm out on the ground. It's something that, you know, I went out and... um, my first game of Masters was my 1300th game of football and I came home from that game and I remember saying to my wife at the time, you know what, I went out, I had a great lot of fun today. Masters women's football has just extended my umpiring career by five years at least. You know, it was, I was excited to be a part of it all. It was just absolutely incredible and getting the opportunity to go to national carnivals with these women and um, meet older women all over the country who have the same passion for the game is absolutely amazing. Well, Di, thank you very much for joining us here on the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast on RSN Carnival. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Thanks again for taking a trip down memory lane with us throughout your career and mentioning some of the players that you managed to umpire along the way throughout uh, your career of, uh, well, more than 30 years involved in women's football with many more yet to come and game 1,500 on the horizon. Hopefully this year, if uh, the coronavirus situation uh, finishes sooner rather than later so we can all get back out there. Dyfe Island, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Peter. And that concludes the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast for yet another week. This program airs every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Melbourne time on RSN Carnival Digital Radio via rsn.net.au and the RSN Racing and Sport app and then is available later as a podcast via Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, the iHeartRadio website and app and also warfradio.com and through any of those channels as well where you get the podcast from, you can get all our episodes going right back to our debut in February 2015 and there's somewhere in the vicinity of about 190 episodes so it's excluding best ofs. So check it out if you're looking to uh, get a little time while we all stay at home during the coronavirus situation. 
Don't forget to find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just do the slash and WARF Radio and our website, WARFradio.com. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks very much for your company, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week.